The first of my posts was a focus summary of Part 4, Chapter 5. The next morning, Raskolnikov goes into the Department of Investigation promptly at 11, and is surprised to be kept waiting for at least 10 minutes. He stands in the waiting room with people passing to and fro and clerks showing no indication that they know who he might be. He looks around to see if there is some guard secretly on watch and sees nothing of the sort. He is reassured that his enigmatic accuser of the day before had not seen everything, or at least had not given them information, and he wonders if the man was even a phantom conjured by his overstrained imagination. He then notices that he is trembling, and that it is from fear of facing Porfiry Petrovich. He hates him intensely, but he resolves to try and use that hatred to go into the meeting with a cold and arrogant bearing, and to keep silent. At that moment, he is summoned to Porfiry Petrovich, and he finds him alone in his study. Porfiry Petrovich closes the door at once and meets Raskolnikov with a genial air, speaking to him in familiar terms, inviting him to sit on the sofa, and extending both his hands, one of which, Raskolnikov notices, he draws back. Raskolnikov offers him the paper about the watch, and Porfiry Petrovich says casually that that is all he needed. Raskolnikov says that he believes Porfiry Petrovich had said he wanted to question him. He immediately worries over his formulation, and then anxiously questions why he worries. His nerves quiver, and he fears that he will again say too much. Porfiry Petrovich dashes strangely to and fro about the table, first avoiding Raskolnikov's eyes, and then looking him directly in the face. He begins casually speaking to Raskolnikov about his government quarters being under repair, and he asks Raskolnikov if government quarters are not a capital thing. Raskolnikov agrees, and Porfiry repeats three times, a capital thing. This stupid repetition stirs Raskolnikov's spleen, and he becomes incautious. He tells Porfiry Petrovich that he understands it to be some sort of legal tradition for investigators to disarm the man they are questioning by starting with some trivial subject. And Porfiry Petrovich asks if he means a subject like government quarters. Then he screws up his eyes, winks, and lets out nervous, prolonged, shaking laughter. This forces Raskolnikov to laugh, too, which prompts Porfiry to break into a guffaw. Raskolnikov's repulsion then overcomes all caution, and he scowls at Porfiry with hatred. Porfiry Petrovich seems undisturbed by Raskolnikov's annoyance, and Raskolnikov begins to wonder if he has fallen into a trap. Raskolnikov rises, puts on his cap, and tells Porfiry Petrovich that if he has anything to ask him, he should ask it. If not, he will withdraw, as he has a funeral to attend. He begins adding details about the man run over and about his own illness, and then feels angry with himself for adding these phrases that he now views as so out of place. Porfiry Petrovich responds dismissively that he has nothing to question him about, saying he regards him simply as a visitor. He apologizes for his laughter, 
and flatters Raskolnikov that it was stimulated by his witty observation. He asks Raskolnikov to please sit down, and Raskolnikov does, though frowning and still holding his cap. He apologizes for the difficulty of finding a topic of conversation for two clever men who are not intimate, like them. He asks Raskolnikov to put his cap down, saying it makes him uncomfortable, because it seems as if Raskolnikov were about to go. Raskolnikov obliges, but thinks to himself that Porfiry Petrovitch is trying to distract him with his silly babble. Porfiry says to spend five minutes with a friend, and he apologizes for running up and down, saying he needs the exercise. He says these interviews are more embarrassing for the interrogator than the interrogated, complimenting Raskolnikov on having made that observation, which he didn't make. Porfiry Petrovich babbles a lot of empty phrases punctuated by laughter about the work of investigation, how inquiries are conducted, the truth of Raskolnikov's comments about trivial subjects, etc. All the while, he makes extraordinary gesticulations and runs on his fat little legs around the room. Raskolnikov notices that twice he stopped at the door as though listening, and wonders if he is expecting something. Porfiry Petrovich comments flatteringly that he doesn't dare venture to instruct Raskolnikov about the nature of legal form, given the articles he publishes about crime, but says that if he took a man for a criminal, he wouldn't arrest him at once, even if he did have evidence against him, but would let him walk about the town a bit. Raskolnikov listens to him with compressed lips and feverish eyes. Porfiry Petrovich goes on, explaining that even if he were convinced of who had committed a crime, he would wait to shut him up until he had irrefutable, mathematically clear proof. He says that the general case, to which legal forms and rules apply, does not exist. Each case is thoroughly special. With some men, especially intelligent men, if he leaves them quite alone and lets them suspect that every night and day they are being watched, they will lose their heads and betray themselves. Such men are sick and nervous and suffer from spleen and he can let them walk about, knowing that they will never escape him. Such men will be psychologically unable to escape. They will brood and worry and circle around him like a butterfly around a candle, and then fly straight into his mouth. Raskolnikov sits pale and motionless, gazing intently at Porfiry Petrovich. He thinks to himself that this is more than a game of cat and mouse, it is a trap. He wonders if Porfiry Petrovich has no proofs and is reckoning on his shattered nerves. His lips become parched and flecked with foam, his heart throbs, and at times he longs to fall on Porfiry and strangle him. Porfiry continues talking, chuckling, and pacing around the room, calling himself a comic figure and a buffoon. He observes that Raskolnikov puts intellect and abstract arguments above everything, just like the men who, on paper, beat Napoleon and took him prisoner, and then surrendered with all their army. He apologizes for his references to military history, 
saying that he is fond of the subject, and that he ought to have been in the army. He says he would not have been a Napoleon, but he would have been a good major. Porfiry continues his incessant talking, seemingly burying his lead, that the criminal, who is a special case, who becomes carried away by his own wit when he oversteps all obstacles, will lie in the cleverest fashion and enjoy the fruits of his wit, but then, at the most flagrant moment, he will faint. The cleverest man will turn pale when doing so is too natural, will speak when he ought to keep silent, will come and ask why he hasn't been taken long ago. He observes that Raskolnikov appears pale, and asks if he ought to open the window. Raskolnikov rises on legs trembling so violently that he can scarcely stand, and says directly that he sees that Porfiry Petrovitch suspects him of murdering the old woman and Lizaveta. His lips tremble, his eyes glow with fury, and he screams that he will not allow himself to be jeered at. Porfiry Petrovitch asks what is the matter with him. He says Raskolnikov is ill, brings him some water, and tells him to hush, or people will come in. He speaks to Raskolnikov with friendly sympathy, and he looks disconcerted. He tells Raskolnikov that he knows how he went to take a flat, and asked about the blood, calling these foolish actions the consequence of generous indignation on the wrongs he has received in being suspected. He tells Raskolnikov he is ill, and asks him to think of poor Razumihin, treating Raskolnikov with friendly solicitude. Raskolnikov does not believe a word he says, but he feels a strange inclination to believe. Porfiry goes on to describe a similar case of morbid psychology, where a man only partly, unintentionally responsible for a murder, persuaded himself that he was the murderer. But when the case went to the High Court of Appeal, he was acquitted. He dismisses Raskolnikov's self-sabotaging actions as illness and delirium. Raskolnikov's mind whirls as he wonders if it is possible that Porfiry is lying, and to what a degree of fury it might drive him if he were. Trying to penetrate Porfiry's game, he says, I was not delirious. I knew what I was doing. Porfiry responds encouragingly that if he were actually a criminal, he would never say that. Raskolnikov draws back and stares at him in perplexity. He tells Porfiry that he is lying, that he is trying to show he knows Raskolnikov's games, that he is trying to frighten him or is laughing at him. Porfiry laughs and calls him a wily person, saying he will soon make him believe, because he genuinely likes him and wishes him good. He tells him he must take care of his illness and must comfort his mother and sister. Raskolnikov asks how he knows about that, and he says that from Razumihin and from Raskolnikov himself he has learned a number of interesting things. Porfiry says that if he did suspect Raskolnikov, he would have tried to distract him with trivial matters, and then dealt him a knockdown blow, just like Raskolnikov said. Raskolnikov insists again that he is lying, and Porfiry Petrovitch laughs 
asking why, if he was lying, he would have given Raskolnikov every excuse for his defense. Raskolnikov rises, looks at him haughtily, pushes Porfiry back, and asks directly whether he regards Raskolnikov as free from suspicion or not. Porfiry evades the question, and Raskolnikov says he cannot put up with it. Porfiry asks, with what? Uncertainty. Raskolnikov again shouts that he won't have it, and Porfiry again tells him to hush, or they'll overhear. Finally, Raskolnikov takes his cap and moves to go, testing whether Porfiry will arrest him. But Porfiry asks playfully whether he wants to see the little surprise behind the door. Raskolnikov goes to the door in alarm, but it is locked, and Porfiry brings the key out of his pocket. Raskolnikov rushes at Porfiry, roaring again that he is lying. He screams that he has nothing but rubbishy suspicions like Zamyatov, and that he is trying to drive Raskolnikov to fury. Raskolnikov cries to Porfiry, Produce them all, your deputies, your witnesses, what you like. And at that moment, a strange incident occurs that neither man could ever have expected. The next of my posts was called Uncertainty. When I finished recording this last installment, I navigated over to Twitter and Facebook to tell the world that if they have not met the character of Porfiry Petrovich, they have not lived. I was, once again, transfixed by this chapter, hanging on every word, watching with fascination the escalating stakes and tactics of this cat-and-mouse game, marveling over Porfiry's power to confound Raskolnikov, and even, at times, feeling a bit confounded myself. I don't know if I should be embarrassed to admit this, but at a few moments in this chapter I wondered, wait, is Porfiry protecting Raskolnikov? Does he like him? Either he is, and he does, and we have been introduced to an entirely new and very intriguing dimension of his character, or I am a fool. But I was myself, like Raskolnikov, sometimes uncertain whether and when to believe. Most of the time, I was convinced that it was all artful deception on Porfiry's part, and that Raskolnikov was indeed falling into a trap, and I enjoyed reflecting on his masterful manipulation. His techniques are too layered and complex for me to really do them justice with a cursory analysis, but I do find it illuminating to think about what Porfiry Petrovich does that so confuses and agitates Raskolnikov, and so effectively throws him off his game. One theme seems to run through many, if not all, of his methods. Unpredictability and uncertainty. He uses these methods with great comic effect, even in the manic and inexplicable movements of his body. He runs around the room on his fat little legs, dashing to and fro without any apparent aim, and then, as arbitrarily, stops and looks Raskolnikov dead in the face. He makes wild gesticulations with his arms that are utterly incongruous with his words. His incessant babbling is punctuated by hysterical laughter that is often combined with serious and brooding glances. One of the forms in Porfiry's playbook 
seems to be some sort of confusion by frenetic and baffling motion. But these erratic physical motions reflect a more serious unpredictability that drives Raskolnikov mad. Porfiry tortures Raskolnikov with uncertainty about whether he is a suspect, whether there is hard evidence, and whether he will be arrested. Porfiry keeps him waiting when he arrives at the investigator's office, receives him genially into his study, says the paperwork is all he needs, and invites him to sit down for a friendly chat between intelligent men. Raskolnikov's internal uncertainty about what all this means is well reflected in his outward motions. He sits, but he looks at Porfiry suspiciously, and he holds on to his hat. Then, at some point in this friendly chat, Porfiry tells Raskolnikov that if he suspected a man of a crime, he would not worry him prematurely. Even if he did have evidence, he would not arrest him at once. In other words, he might keep that suspect waiting, receive him into his office genially, invite him to sit. You get the idea. And so did Raskolnikov. All this stimulates the sort of second and even third guessing that Porfiry seems uniquely capable of making Raskolnikov suffer. He is received at the office with no to-do, so maybe he isn't a suspect. Porfiry tells him that is how a suspect would be received, so maybe he is. But Porfiry tells him that, openly, so maybe he isn't, and so on. Porfiry also alternates unpredictably between flattering Raskolnikov and condescendingly mocking him. In one breath, he is calling them two clever men who respect each other, praising Raskolnikov for his witticisms, some of which he never said, laughing with him over the absurdity of conventional legal forms, or deferring to him as an expert on crime. And in the next, he is making suggestive references to Napoleon and to men who overstep all obstacles, lampooning those who put intellect above everything and who work out perfectly in theory what ends up a disaster in reality, and ridiculing the nervous criminal who lies and gets away with it and then faints at the most flagrant moment, even if the room was stuffy. It is after this most ruthless mockery, when Porfiry describes how the criminal's temperament always betrays him, how he turns pale when paleness is too natural, speaks when he ought to be silent, circles around his pursuer like a butterfly around a candle, that he then makes the abrupt about-face that caught me too. Raskolnikov finally loses his mind, screaming that he won't allow himself to be ridiculed, and slamming his fist down on the table. And Porfiry appears genuinely frightened, comes in close to Raskolnikov, whispers to him to hush or they might hear, offers him a drink of water, and looks at him with alarm and sympathy. He starts telling Raskolnikov everything he knows, offering him defenses for his behavior, and insisting that he genuinely likes him and wishes him good. This move leaves Raskolnikov utterly confounded. He thinks he is lying. But is he lying? I will be furious to the point of madness if he is lying. But he is definitely lying. I want to believe he is not lying. But he must be lying. 
I felt the same uncertainty. Except my feeling in that moment was, I want to believe he is lying, that he likes Raskolnikov and wants to help him, and I will be furious to the point of madness if he isn't. At one point, Raskolnikov cries, I repeat that I can't put up with it. And Porfiry says, with what? Uncertainty. Because that is just what he was counting on, and a powerfully effective technique it is. But is this gesture of kindness just part of his ruse? Or does he mean it? I remain uncertain, but I am confident from experience with the novel thus far that if I wait, certainty will come. The last of my posts was called On Paper. It seems to me that one of the important themes this novel addresses is the danger of pure intellect, devoid of the human element. It came up in this chapter in Porfiry's description of Raskolnikov as one who, like all young people of the time, puts intellect above everything— and is fascinated by playful wit and abstract arguments. He likens them to the Austrian army at the time of Napoleon. Quote, On paper, they'd beaten him and taken him prisoner, and there in their study, they worked it all out in the cleverest fashion. Unquote. But in reality, quote, General Mack surrendered with all his army. Unquote. It has come up countless times before, in the criminal calculations which in Raskolnikov's mind were simple as arithmetic, in that meaningful juxtaposition between Luzhin's empty praise for the new ideas of the young generation, and Raskolnikov cowering in the corner as their living embodiment, in the whole fabric of the novel, really, with the contrast between Raskolnikov's painstakingly worked-out theory and the painful reality of its practice. This is a point captured well by William J. Leatherbarrow, which is an amazing name, by the way, in an article called Ethical Questions in Crime and Punishment that I found in a companion to the novel by Harold Bloom. Quote, Despite all the uncertainties on which crime and punishment rests, one overriding certainty is sustained throughout the novel. The conviction that the crime in the final analysis is wrong. Raskolnikov is aware of the wrongness of his crime even during those moments when he vigorously defends it on intellectual and utilitarian grounds. For in the end, the criteria against which he measures his actions derive not from the intellect, but from those deeper regions of the human soul, the existence of which had been so fervently denied by rational philosophy. For example, all of Raskolnikov's attempts to justify his crime are persistently confounded by the intangible, irrational, but nonetheless incapacitating sensations of alienation which overcome him from the moment of the murder onward. Despite his conviction that it is possible to commit a murder in a calculated, conscious manner, he is immobilized by a loss of will that immediately follows the violence. In a similar fashion, he is subsequently attacked by totally unanticipated sensations of estrangement from his family, the officials at the police station, indeed, from humanity as a whole. Unquote. In the future, should you ever need to call upon an example of the dangers of rationalism, 
of theory detached from reality. Dostoevsky has provided a powerful one.